0: Welcome to the Good Growing podcast. I'm your host Chris Enroth, and I'm a horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, based in Macomb, Illinois. And today we are talking about vegetable gardening, or you know, kind of just backyard gardening in in general. Uh, but I can't do this alone, so I have some of our fellow Good Growing co-authors here, uh, joined by Katie Parker. Katie's a local foods educator. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. So, uh, Katie, a local foods educator, what what exactly, what is that for extension?
1: Um, so I work with our local growers uh, and provide them with information uh, to assist them in their production practices. Um, I also provide our community with information about those local growers, um, as a lot of times we can utilize those people for um produce that we can purchase. Um, Part of my position is I work with other extension educators as well as campus-based specialists um, and various agencies to provide our local growers with programming focusing on um, agronomic and horticultural crop production. Uh, That can also include cover crops, pest management, soil nutrient management. Um, But that's, that's mostly what I work with.
0: And so it sounds like, you know, and at least it's been in my experience a lot of what you describe, it can scale down for the most part to a backyard grower or, or home gardener. Is that true?
1: That is correct. So I have a lot of people from the community have, um, that have questions or need help with uh, soil sampling or getting their garden started, um, any issues that they might uh, run into it with their, their home garden uh, that I can help them with.
0: And uh, let me ask you here, since we're trying to target specifically vegetable gardening today with this episode, uh, what's your favorite thing to grow in the vegetable garden?
1: Oh, that's a difficult one. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> Who's What's so... your favorite kid? That's what I'm <laughs> trying to ask you.
1: Y- yeah. So I, well, my training is uh, crop science, so I used to work in as agronomist um, and have a lot of experience with corn and soybeans, so sweet corn is definitely one that I enjoy growing.
0: That is probably one of the ones I enjoy eating the best and is the most requested as the summertime. Oh, yeah, meal. for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, very good. Uh, do, you know, do you have a variety in particular that you like for sweet corn?
1: Uh, no, nothing in particular. A lot of times we get some free sweet corn um, with our our corn hybrid um, purchases that we make from the larger companies, and so anything that's free is always good, right?
0: the, the tastes a little bit better, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, and we also are joined by Ken Johnson, a Horticulture Educator, U of I Extension based in Jacksonville. Hello, Ken.
2: Hello, Chris and Katie.
0: So Ken, um, we've had you on the podcast before, but uh, kind of give a, another update uh, to the listeners about kind of your background and what do you enjoy when it t- comes to gardening?
2: Um, yep, so like Chris mentioned, I'm also a horticulture educator. So I deal or work primarily with you know, homeowners. And um, we also have some uh, tree fruit growers and other um, kind of small farmers um, that I work with um, as well. Um, as far as background, I'm more of an insect person, um, so that's kind of that's kind of my little niche that I've carved out with extension as insects and stuff and and kind of vegetables, edible food crops as well.
0: Yeah. And Ken, I mean, when you say insects, you're talking the good, the bad, and kind of the ones people have never heard of, but you love them, right?
2: Yes. There's yeah. there's no such thing as a bad book. Uh, I don't know. Just is that understood. true, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't know about that. I don't think I'd want bed bugs.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,, I would agree with that one. They're
2: just misunderstood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I feel the same way I think about weeds too. Uh, sometimes I think the poor thing's just grown in the wrong place. So, yeah, um, so we're good we solicited questions from our social medias from across uh, Illinois, from the the Facebooks, the Instagrams, And so we do have a couple questions that came in. And so I'll I'll read those out and then we will uh, answer these for you. Um, But before we do that, I want to just make sure that we plug and promote our Good Growing blog. Uh, So both Katie, Ken, and myself, we are authors of the Good Growing blog, which you can subscribe to. I will have a link to that in the show notes uh, for the podcast here. And um, right now we are focusing pretty heavily on uh, vegetable gardening. And so we are putting out pretty much three articles every week. Usually we do one article a week but now we have three articles coming out and it's a pretty intense uh, schedule uh, talking about vegetable gardens and everything you pretty much need to know from seed to harvest. So with that let's dive into our first question and this comes from Ed uh, from Knox County and he wants to know what to do about squash bugs this year. It sounds like he might have had some problems in the past. So, I think that can be in the bug guy. That
2: might be yours. Uh, so, kind of this time of year, what you can do if you've <clears throat> had squash in the past, which I'm assuming he has, um, you kind of want to go into that area, clean it up, um, get any of that crop debris out. If you've had mulch in there, um, it may be a good idea to remove some of that uh, because those squash bugs will overwinter um, in that the debris, um, that mulch kind of those protected areas. So, if you get rid of that, um, you may eliminate. Um, some of your squash bugs right off the bat. Um, then come kind of late spring, um, <clears throat> early summer time frame. usually um, kind of mid-June, mid-July is when those squash bugs will start coming out and laying eggs and stuff. Um, so at that point you want to go out and start scouting uh, for those squash bug uh, egg masses. So typically they'll lay those in clusters, um, about 20 or so eggs in there. Uh, the eggs are usually kind of a bronze color or brick red color to them. Um, a lot of times you can find those um, kind of where the, the veins on the leaf uh, form a V, those notches there, a lot of times I'll lay those there. So you can go out and look for those. If you see those, um, you, know, you can kind of pick those off, you can crush them, tear that section of the leaf out, um, just eliminate those eggs from uh, your plantings. And again, that's gonna help reduce the number of squash bugs you have um, when those eggs start hatching. Again, when they start hatching, um, it's best to try to control them when they are young. The older they get, the bigger they get, the more difficult it gets to control them. Um, so you see those eggs start hatching, then you wanna go out um, <clears throat> and spray um, with, your, with your pesticides to try to manage those. Um, another way to start scouting for those once they start hatching is you can lay a board um, or something like that, that out in your plantings and they will congregate under that. Um, so then you can go out and lift up that board um, and a lot of times those bugs will be kind of all concentrated in that one area and you can kind of dispose of them, pick your poison on how you dispose of them, crush them, spray them, um, do whatever. Kind of the, the basics on how to manage those.
0: I, I started growing squash when I was a kid, and I remember our first year the squash bugs just decimated the crop, and kind of I lost hope for ever doing something like that again. But then, you know, I, I've grown it a few times and last year squash bugs, they showed back up and we did exactly what you said. We, we sort of used the integrated pest uh, management approach. We picked, we scouted, we, we did a little bit of pesticide spraying, being very careful, uh, you know, we don't want to get, uh, spray our flowers. And then I noticed, you know, we still had a, a few here and there, but I noticed we started finding mummified squash bugs late in the season. And as I did more research, I found out there's a particular parasitic fly that will target squash bugs. Um, Unfortunately, though, that it doesn't actually give you very good control because it takes so long in the season for that parasitic fly population to build up to where it would actually control the bugs for you. Um, But it it was actually pretty neat to see a beneficial coming in
2: to help us out with that. Yeah, those beneficial insects are, are cool. Those are you know, they'll get into aphids, pretty much any kind of insect you have out there probably has some kind of parasite parasitoid that's gonna attack it and, and give you at least a little bit of, of management form.
0: Yeah, perfect. So, all right, well, Ed, hopefully squash bugs don't show up this year, but uh, now if they do, you know, you have guidelines for scouting and treatment. Um, our next question comes from Kelly. Kelly is uh, in McLean County. Um, that's where Bloomington Normal, that's the big town there. Um, so what she is asking is she sort of has a, a longer question here. She's saying half of her backyard is covered in landscape fabric and rock mulch. Uh, she knows that she should dig it all out, but that's not happening. So she's wondering, should she uh, seed some clover, uh, mix it in? Will it grow in the rocks? Uh, should she put in more soil? Uh, she's thinking of it as a temporary solution. So. What does everybody think about doing something like that?
1: I would say if she adds some soil to her rock mulch, she should be able to get clover to grow. Uh, I guess it depends on what kind of landscape fabric you have, too, though. Um, But I would think that that, for future, would make it very difficult to clean up or to get rid of. Um, Sometimes they say just, like, Taking things uh, in control from the start and just getting rid of it from the beginning is the best way to go. Um, but I think there could be some possibility of being able to get that clover to develop um, in what she has now.
0: I, I would agree. You know, you, you probably could get that clover to develop in that rock. But the, when the day comes, you know, Kelly says this is a temporary solution. When that day comes that she's ready to get rid of that rock and everything... That's just going to make it a, a bigger task. Uh, it's going to make it more work. Uh, have it, I, I've had a backyard with with rock mulch and underneath. Actually, they put plastic and it was too big of a chore to do in one weekend. And uh, we pretty much chunked it up into sections and we did it bit by bit. And we kept the other areas weed free in the meantime. Um, and then our ultimate goal was to use that rock to then create a nice little dry creek bed in our backyard as a temporary solution maybe would work but i think you're going to be adding more work in the long run when you actually decide to dig out all of that landscape fabric and rock mulch
1: right it doesn't sound like a fun project that's for sure
0: no no you know we would do landscape fabric when i was doing landscaping and um it does a good job of keeping weeds down for about a year or two but after a couple years the weeds grow through it, they grow on top of it, and it just Mm -hmm. becomes more of a pain than uh, actually helping you at that point. So our third question comes from Toby. Toby is also from Knox County, and um, with the gardening season coming up, he is wanting to buy an empty lot that's near his house, and he's going to use this as a garden area. However, this lot had a house burned down about six to seven years ago. Uh, He knows there's still chunks of concrete sticking up. Uh, It's not easy to mow with all the debris. So what issues does Toby need to look out for to ensure he can have a productive garden in this area? Um, I I will just say first off um, some of the stories that have come out of places like uh, California where they had their huge wildfires uh, as uh, kind of news and uh, research about the amount of contaminants that occur af- in the soil after a fire has happened a house fire and i think for this question toby we would just assume that your soil is contaminated right off the bat because of everything in a house that can burn all of the chemicals that are you know in tvs uh, everything from cooking wear, which might contain things like lead or mercury uh, you know so there's a lot of different chemicals that could be there, and there's no way for us to know exactly what exactly could be in the soil. So I don't know. Uh, Katie, Ken, what what else do you think?
1: There's definitely soil tests to see what levels of those contaminants are in the soil. Uh, so if he was really adamant about growing a garden there, he could do that. Uh, um... But, yeah, I would say you definitely need to do some research before growing food that you're going to eat in that area.
2: And with all the debris in the, the raised bed option may be the best instead of trying to clear all the debris out and deal with potential um, contamination, building raised beds or use, and putting down a some kind of, Uh, geotextile fabric or something if there is contamination and building raised beds on top of that Um, and then making sure you're mulching um, if there is soil contamination so that dust isn't spreading any of those contaminants um, would be another option.
0: Yeah I think the primary route to exposure when it comes to soil contaminants uh, it's not necessarily plants taking that contaminant up into its tissue it's more from you working that soil and getting it on your skin or breathing it in as dust and so yeah making sure that you're protecting yourself uh, a lot of times folks that are gardening in, in, in urban locations where there is very typically soil contaminants a lot of times they have to use dust masks or face masks to uh, prevent themselves from breathing stuff in as they're beginning to prepare the garden for either a raised bed uh, or or something anytime they're disturbing that soil that's on site. So all right our fourth and this is the final question here is from Steve and Steve is in McDonough County and he is worried about his budding apple tree. Uh, We had a 30 degree uh, low last night here where I'm at in Macomb And uh, so he's kind of worried about the temperatures and just looking at the extended forecast. It looks like we're going to have some nights in the 20s for next week. Uh, It hasn't blossomed yet, though, he says. There's just these little buds on it. Is there something he can do to help protect them?
2: So depending on kind of where, so we know it's not in bloom, but kind of depending on where in development it is, um, you know, is it green tip, half inch green, tight cluster, all those different um, stages for apple bud development. You know, there's they can take temperatures down into the depending on the staging. You know, if you're at first pink, pink cluster or stuff like that, you can they can go down to 28 degrees, and typically you'll see around a 10% bud kill. Um, so that really wouldn't be too much of an issue um, if it's less developed than that. Um, you know, where your bud flower buds aren't really showing any color yet. Um, some of those you can get down into the teens, low 20s, and not really see um, much damage to the plants. Um, and if, again, if you're in that, that flower stage, you get into the mid-20s and you start seeing, you potentially see 90% bud kill. Um, but luckily with apples, you know, <clears throat> you don't need all of those flowers in order to get, um, to get a good crop off of those. And if you get a little bit of bud kill, you know, kind of think of on the bright side, you're going to have, Fewer apples to prune out of your tree potentially. Um, As far as protection, you know, kind of an orchard setting, people may, um, some of the larger commercial orchards, kind of more your Michigan, Washington State, New York, stuff like that, they'll have wind, kind of wind machines, almost like little windmills out in their fields. In their orchards, they'll kind of mix the air um, because the cold air will settle. is it more dense so it settles to the ground? So they'll mix that air to keep that air a little bit warmer around the trees. Sometimes they'll rent helicopters um, to bring them out again to mix that air. Not really something all that practical for the backyard. Um, I have heard of people kind of building fires relatively close to the tree to keep the temperature up, but then you know, depending on where you're at and if you can burn, um, that's probably not all that practical. Um, I've heard of people wrapping. Trees um, with the old incandescent Christmas lights, those will give off some heat um, to try to keep that temperature up. Um, but as long as we're not getting real cold that you probably don't have to do too much to protect those.
0: Yep, and that's just pretty much what I've seen if if it's a smaller tree maybe the only other thing you could do is you could wrap it in some type of a, a row cover or a lightweight bed sheet. Uh, but for, for larger trees that might not be practical either. So Um, Apples are tough trees and in our area, you know, kind of depending a bit on your, your uh, cultivar that you have picked out, um, but but kind of depending on that and our area weather where it's sited in the the landscape, high spot, low spot, um, it should be all right um, just because, you know, apples, they, they're a tough tree. Now, if it was a peach tree, I wouldn't be so confident in that statement. So Uh, we have a peach tree outside of our office window and we have had late spring frosts for the last couple years and each time it has hit it right as the flowers have opened so we have not had peaches for many years now well that that was all the questions that we had um if you are listening and you have questions, I will put a link below to our Good Growing blog. I will put my email down there. You are more than welcome to get in touch with with myself, with Katie, with Ken. We all work for Extension. We are here to answer your horticulture, your growing questions. Um, and I just want to thank everybody for being here. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Ken, for being on today. Appreciate it.
1: Thank, thank you for having
0: us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. Keep on growing.